Where does the world come from? Was it a god? Was it some primordial substance that transformed into all the stuff around us? Or was it all just some original process of physics, a chemical reaction on a grander scale? We don't know. We don't have the answer. We have ideas. Our first ideas were religious ones. The question, where do we come from, was answered with creation myths, like the Babylonian Enuma Elish, which tells us of the original gods, Apsu and Tiamat, back before the universe even existed. And we have Genesis, of course, in the Bible, with God creating the world in six days, beginning with heaven and the earth. Our ideas today are scientific. Physicists are still trying to figure out what was going on there in that split second between the Big Bang and the moment the laws of time and space took hold in the universe. They're still trying to answer that question, where do we come from? Where does it all come from? But another question might be, when did it happen that our answers to these questions stopped being about gods and started being about matter and energy and processes? How did we get from a religious account of the origin of the world to a scientific account? And that's the story I'm telling today. Sometime in the 6th century BC, in Miletus, a Greek colony in modern-day Turkey, a group of thinkers became the first men in history to approach these questions critically without resorting to myth, mysticism or magic. And for this reason, Today, these Milesians are heralded as the first philosophers and the original scientists. Patrick brings a certain something to the conversation around philosophy that I particularly find fascinating. Can you dig it? Oh my God, Patrick, you crack me up. Can you dig it? You go from talking about, about religion and Yahweh to a song about the cult of Moloch. <laughs> That's fucking classic. Love it. Can you dig it? Hello, humans. Welcome to The Great Everything, the world's only podcast dedicated to art, donuts, and transformation. I'm Patrick, a former banking lawyer who saw the light and quit to devote my existence to culture and philosophy, the greatest self-improvement tools of all. Great show today, man. Great show. You're always so busy creating all of this amazingness. Jeez, your show is just so stupid. Today's episode of The Great Everything is an origin story. The birth of philosophy is something that I think is a very special moment in our story of being human. First of all, it's always valuable to look back at the classical world, antiquity, ancient Greece and ancient Rome. There's something about that world and what you can learn from it that is just unlike anything else. I studied classics as an undergraduate and one of the things that I found most interesting about it is that it really gives you a deep insight into what is timeless about us human beings. When you're looking at the classical world, you're looking at stories and people that are biologically just like us. We have not evolved one jot since then. Yet, in many ways, the world they live in is so alien, so different from us. And in that weird and unique interplay between similarities and vast differences, 
you really get a good look at what it is that makes us all human. The birth of philosophy, which is part of the story of ancient Greece, is particularly crucial to us because there's many different ways of looking at it, at the story of philosophy, but one way, one pretty established way, is that philosophy is some kind of original discipline from which all the other disciplines kind of spin off. So when you're looking at philosophy, you're not just looking at the origins of one thing, but of many different things that have made us who we are today, that have made Western civilization what it is. And origin stories are always powerful because origins are interesting. Origins hold the seed, the key to understanding us. When you watch a superhero movie, the origin story is what tells you everything you need to know about that character. When you're watching a multi-season TV series with a big overarching villain that goes on throughout the whole show, there's always an episode, and it's usually later on in the series run, where you see everything from the point of view of the villain. And maybe you'll get that insight into the villain's origin story, into the circumstances and the traumas that made the villain into who he is. Through seeing the origin story of the villain, you get a real insight into his motivations, into what makes him who he is. Our origin stories, whether we're talking about the Big Bang, or the Bible, or the Bhagavad Gita, or the birth of philosophy, are all important because they give us a deep insight into who we really are. And this episode is an origin story in more ways than one. The earliest philosophers were known as the pre-Socratics, as in before Socrates. Socrates is traditionally seen as a dividing line in the history of early philosophy because he was asking a very different, a new set of questions and he was going about it in an innovative way that kind of set a new course for philosophy in its early maturity. They sometimes say that he was the first moral philosopher. He was probably not the first, but he certainly was the one who really put the focus on questions about what does it mean to live a good life? But the first philosophers are asking questions that are even more foundational. The first philosophers are a bit like the first humans, stumbling out of the caves into the light and just sort of finding their footing and then looking around themselves with a sense of awe and wonder and asking, what is this? How is this? They are asking questions about what's out there. What is it made of? What is the nature of reality? Where does the world come from? What are its building blocks? These are big picture, birth of the universe type questions. The kinds of questions physicists deal with today. So maybe we can consider these earliest philosophers, these pre-Socratics, as scientists, or at least as proto-scientists. And there's a lot we can learn from how they went about approaching these questions. Think about where they're coming from. A world where every answer on important matters is coming from some kind of higher authority, a king, a priest, a holy book of some sort, all unquestionable, all dogma. What makes these guys the first philosophers is that to them, nothing is unquestionable. They question the shit out of everything and they come up with their own answers 
using reason. And then they develop this habit of learning how to defend and justify those answers using reason and critical thinking. Nobody else is doing that in their time. And that's what's amazing. You see, all the other philosophers that we ever study, they've inherited a tradition of this type of thinking. Sometimes this tradition is thousands of years old. Obviously, modern philosophers, they have thousands of years to look back at and learn from. But these earlier guys, these pre-Socratics, they are starting from scratch. This is something I love thinking about and repeating to the annoyance of all my friends. The difference between 1 and 100 is huge, but it's nowhere nearly as big as the difference between 1 and 0. Because the difference between something and more of something is a difference in quantity. But something from nothing is a difference in quality. A paradigm shift. These early philosophers, they pioneered critical thinking in a society where that skill couldn't have been all that popular. And I can think of other times and places where reason and critical thinking aren't that popular. And maybe in times like those, we could all use a little bit of that pre-Socratic chutzpah to fly in the face of convention, of authority, and question our dogmas and our received knowledge, and to arrive at our own answers using our brains, using reason, and not just what we hear from those we consider authorities. Before we get into the first philosophers, let's ask, what was even first? Uh, after all, it's not like there wasn't already a rich intellectual tradition in the Mediterranean and around it. And we kind of have to be aware of what's going on in places like Egypt and Mesopotamia and, and Babylon, which is also in Mesopotamia, because these are places that the early Greeks are trading with. They're in contact with them especially the Greek colonies in places like Turkey and Syria. So the Greeks are at least dimly aware of the big ideas, of the cultural achievements of these other civilizations. And these Eastern societies, like Babylon, they are usually priestly and military aristocracies that revolve around divine kings like uh, Ramses III or Hammurabi, rulers who have some kind of special relationship with the gods, or in some cases were actual gods themselves, like the pharaohs. So the starting point for culture, for knowledge, is authority, the absolute religious authority of the king and his priests. And that authority can be enforced through violence of the military. In these Eastern societies, in our earliest cultures in the West and the Middle East, culture is something that comes from above, so you don't question it. Hammurabi's code, you know, the one, an eye for an eye, the first known set of laws, that was said to come straight from the god Marduk. So how are you going to question those laws? And what are you going to do? You're going to question a god? But these cultures, they weren't just about religion. They developed other cultural forms like mathematics and geometry and astronomy. But 
But these were all used in practical ways. Mathematics was for collecting taxes, for counting the bushels of grain, itemizing, for making storage and inventory. And astronomy was mainly to be able to work out the seasons for harvest, for the crops. So it's all practical. And it's all coming from the admin, from the governmental bodies. So it has that backing of divine authority, or at least of you know threat of force if you question it. So it's not meant to be shared or spread or to be discussed openly. The ordinary individual, he has no role in this. He is at best a passive receiver of culture. Now, the earliest Greek thoughts that we have examples of are kind of similar to this. There's some differences, but a lot of similarities. First of all, there's definitely a strong religious element. Think of Homer's epics, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Everything that happens in those stories of the sack of Troy and uh, Odysseus's travels around the Mediterranean, everything that happens is because some god makes it happen. Aphrodite hands Helen over to the Trojan prince Paris, so she starts the war. Apollo starts a plague. Zeus gives Agamemnon a dream where he tells him to attack Troy. Neptune causes storms that strand Odysseus. Hera, she's always pissed off at someone, usually because of something Zeus did. Everything that is happening is happening because of gods. They are literally behind the natural phenomena, behind even the thoughts and the feelings and the passions that every human character has. The emotions are put into the characters by the gods. In fact, we can take it a step further. Even the telling of the story happens because of the gods. So if you're familiar with Homer's works, you'll know that they start with an invocation to the muse, to the goddess to inspire him, the Iliad starts, Sing, goddess, about the dark, murderous rage of Achilles, son of Peleus. And the Odyssey starts, Sing to me, muse, of the man of many skills and great cunning, who after plundering Troy was driven off course again and again and wandered for many years. You see, Homer, the poet, if he even was just one guy, he's not telling the story. He's just the channel for the story. It's the goddess, the muse that is telling the story, that is singing through him. And then you have this other fucker, Hesiod. Hesiod is a Greek poet, and we're talking around 750 BC, which, just to give you some perspective, is 250 years before this is Sparta. It's 300 years before Athens was, you know, top dog. 350 years before Socrates. So this is so far before Greece became the Greece we know that you could fit the entire history of the United States in this period and then some. So that's just to give you an idea. Hesiod writes an epic poem called Theogony. Literally, the birth of the gods, another origin story. This is a mythological account of the origins of the world, an early version of that first philosophical question, where does all this come from? And what Hesiod is doing in Theogony is collating various local myths about the origin of the world and putting them all together into a narrative form. And the result is this epic poem which, culturally, to the ancient Greeks, is kind of like the equivalent of the Bible, of Genesis, to us. And together with Homer's epics, the Iliad and the Odyssey, these are the Greek world's sacred texts. But even though these are mythological explanations of the world, similar to the Epic of Gilgamesh, we're already seeing one serious difference between the Greek approach to these questions and how the Egyptians and the Babylonians went about answering them. Because the guy giving us these stories, 
Hesiod, he's not a god or a king. He's not even a priest. He's just a poet, an ordinary guy, a commoner, with no power, with no authority. So what on earth could give him any authority to tell us, the people, how the world works, where it comes from? Well, just like Homer, Hesiod begins the Theogony with an invocation to the muse to inspire his poetry. But there's a difference. He begins the poem by saying, let us sing, O muses, of the gods on Mount Helicon. Do you notice that? It's not sing through me, muse, like Homer humbly asked. It's let us sing, muse. So Hesiod, just some humble poet, He's demanding a place at the storyteller's table, at the table of the people who decide how the story is told. You know how they say the history is written by the winners? That is a universal truth. The people who determine the narrative are the powerful. And he, just some nobody, he's saying, I'm telling the story now. I have authority to tell this story. Me, not a god, not a king, just a human with a voice. This is huge. There's more. Hesiod says that the muse comes to him, and the muses, they all teach him this song, this story of the theogony, of the birth of the universe and the gods. Then they instruct him to tell other people the story. And then they breathe into him a divine voice, and they give him a scepter, the symbol of a king. Hesiod is claiming for himself the authority of an actual king to tell stories. He, an ordinary dude. Sure, he's a different kind of ordinary dude. He's a poet, someone who has a special relationship with the gods because of his inspiration. But still, we're talking about a commoner, not a king, not a priest. So in the Western tradition, knowledge no longer has to come from those in power. It can come from a talented individual. Someone with the ability, through his own skill, or maybe with the aid of the gods, to pierce through the deceptive veil of appearance, see the truth behind it, and then tell that truth to others. Someone like a poet or a philosopher. So now we're beginning to see differences between the Eastern and the Western approaches to knowledge. They're both coming from a place of religion and superstition, but the former is more authoritarian and uh, pyramidal, literally. The knowledge is trickling down from above, from a place of authority, from governmental bodies, from the king, from the gods themselves. Whereas the latter is slightly more open to individuals from lower down on the totem pole to step up and participate in the divulgation of knowledge. Why though? What is it that makes the Greeks so different? What is it that gives these Westerners this difference in attitude? We've explained what the difference is, but the question that I find fascinating is why them? I mean, if we take it for granted that we're all starting from the same position, you know, we're, we're 150,000 years ago, we were all in caves. It didn't matter whether you were in China or in Africa or in America. Well, you wouldn't have been in America 150,000 years ago. But the fact is we were kind of more or less all in the same place. Then why would these people rather than those people develop certain cultural norms? 
And in attempting to answer this question, I have to give you a little disclaimer. Everything on The Great Everything is my opinion. It's my own worldview. It's me tying together different strands of knowledge into something coherent to give you a big picture into which you can then insert the individual bits of the puzzle and create your own ideas on how the world works and how it all fits together. It is, at the end of the day, my opinion, based on, well, you know, quite a lot of research at times, but still, you know, be like the Greeks. Don't take this as the gospel. So why the Greeks? When we think uh, Greek philosophy, Greek culture, we're thinking of places like Athens and Sparta and Thebes, you know, Greece. But the truth is, when we're talking about early Greek culture, you know, the first philosophers, we're not really talking about Greece at all. We're talking about colonies of the Greeks, cities founded by Greeks, but outside of Greece, in places like southern Italy and Sicily and Turkey. So you think about what it must have been like to form a colony back in those days, early in the history of our civilization. So you'd have a small city-state just kind of finding its legs, and then you'd send a couple of hundred men and women out into the unknown. These are exploring missions. They're going into territory that is potentially hostile, and often openly hostile. And to do this, obviously, you need able-bodied men. You need warriors in their prime who can defend these early settlements from attackers. I mean, if you're a native Turk in 1000 BC and suddenly you see a bunch of Greeks just landing on your shores and setting up a camp, you might want to attack them. So those Greeks, they need to be able to defend that. But also, the Greeks need people with different skills to be able to face all the unpredictable challenges of a new territory, of a new camp, of a new state. And it seems to me that in this kind of setup, teamwork, cooperation are the only way to ensure survival and the construction of a functioning society. I mean, you'd have leaders in this kind of setup. You'd have uh, warrior leaders. You'd have political leaders. You might have elders. But it seems likely that the warriors, the workers, the elders, they would have had long discussions and debates and arguments as to how to deal with the issues that kept popping up in the community, how to structure the community itself. So, you wouldn't have just one guy handing down orders based on some divine authority that can't be questioned, but instead you would have deliberation and debate, like you see in Native American tribes, for instance, you know, with people sitting around the campfire and discussing the issues, a bit like a proto-democracy. In a society like this, the individual matters. And we get glimpses of this as early as in Homer. So in the Iliad, there's this very famous episode where during the assembly, just consider that word, assembly. The Greeks, you know, they have autocratic leaders like Agamemnon and Menelaus, literally kings. But they still have assemblies where the warriors get to speak and vent. And during one of these assemblies, in the Iliad, this one soldier, this ugly fucker called Thersites, he has a go at King Agamemnon. And he accuses him of, hey, dude, you just sit on your ass all day, and yet you get the pick of all the treasure, all the bounty, you get the best women, despite it being lowly soldiers just like me who do all the work. So Thersites is basically a communist agitator of sorts. Now imagine some Babylonian farmer trying to pull this kind of shit and insulting the king or something. You'd have his head on a stake in a second. So the Greeks are different in a very crucial way. Everyone gets to speak up. And they might get punished for it, because Thersites, he gets punished. He gets beaten by Odysseus, and Odysseus threatens to have him stripped. But it's a social humiliation kind punishment, rather than you know getting arrested and your head lopped off. 
we're seeing a greater freedom to voice unorthodox and even subversive viewpoints than ever before. And what's more unorthodox than saying that maybe, just maybe, the big, grand question of where do we come from, the question asked by people like Hesiod, doesn't require an answer steeped in religion, in mythology. So now, let's zoom in on one of these early proto-democratic Greek colonies in Asia Minor, on the coast of present-day Turkey, a city called Miletus. Miletus is the home of the first philosophers, the first people in the Western intellectual tradition to apply naturalistic, non-mythological explanations to natural phenomena, to openly reject the received wisdom of the religious status quo and the holy texts and come up with their own answers based on reason to the various questions about the world. And there were three of these uh, Milesian philosophers, Thales, Anaximander, and Anaximenes, in that order. Uh, that's not necessarily the order in which I'm going to talk about them, but it is the order of their succession in terms of who taught who, or at least as well as we know it. And they all have a common interest, which is trying to answer that question. What are the basic ingredients, the building blocks of the world? The Milesians are working against the backdrop of a Greek intellectual tradition that is so ancient, it's almost ingrained in the psyche, this belief that the world is based or made up of four elements, water, earth, air, and fire. Now, today we know that none of these are elements. You know, air is not an element. It's made up of elements. You know, water isn't an element and so on. Hydrogen is an element. But back then, you could see how they would think that these were the four main elements of existence. It's not just a Greek thing. Most cultures have this or some variant on it. So the Milesians would have had this basic understanding of the world as made up of four elements, but they want to go deeper. They want to ask, where do these elements come from? Are they the things that existed before anything else? Or perhaps is there one of them that is more important than the others? They are looking for the founding principle, the unifying element, the base substance that the world is made of. In Greek, this is called arche, broadly speaking, the origin. Now, Hesiod thought that the whole world came from chaos, this swirling, primordial, cosmic soup, as Carl Sagan would put it. And then the Earth and the other gods and the universal forces came along to shape things. But the Milesians, they're not down with this kind of mythological explanation. They look around and they see a world and they don't see gods. They see wood, they see ships, they see earth, they see clay, they see houses, they see animals, they see matter. They see stuff. And so they're thinking, maybe in the beginning, it was also stuff. But what kind of stuff? What element could have given rise to the world as we see it? See, this is a rational approach to looking at the natural world, of reducing it, not to something supernatural, but to something finite. And it's a theme, this, isn't it, in human cultures? This idea of taking the multitude of things around us and trying to reduce them to the one thing, the one God, the one substance, the arche, the one law of physics, the theory of everything. It's like we have a need to deduce the one from the many. And to Thales of Miletus, 
The one was water. Now, from what we know of Thales, he was a genius, a true polymath, a renaissance man before the renaissance. So I guess you could call him a naissance man. He's known as a mathematician, and in that field, he's the first man in history to whom a definite mathematical theory has been attributed, Thales's theorem. As an astronomer, he famously predicted the eclipse of 585 BC, which is how we're able to date him. And before you just shrug that off as a bit of interesting trivia, just take a second to let it sink in. Just 500 years ago, we were such a bunch of fuckwits that you could barely say that the Earth traveled around the sun without being burned at the stake for it. And 2,600 years ago, this guy, Thales, is predicting a solar eclipse using his eyes, no telescope, no nothing, no instruments, just his eyes and his brain. These Greeks, man, I'm telling you, they, they, they really had something going on. Now, back to Thales. There's a story that kind of paints him as this stereotypical philosopher, you know, head in the clouds, all theory, always distracted. So he's walking around and he's probably looking at the stars or something, trying to predict the next eclipse. And he falls into a hole in the ground that he hadn't seen. And this uh, Thracian slave girl, she sees him and she starts laughing at him and says, dude, how are you going to figure out what's going on in the heavens when you can't even see what's on the ground in front of you? And the message is clear, isn't it? You know, philosophers, lol, sure, they're very smart and everything, but, you know, it's like they don't even really live in the real world. But despite what the story would have you believe about philosophers generally and Thales specifically, he was also very, very practical. He used his knowledge of geometry to calculate the distance of ships at sea using triangulation, which I'm sure would have been extremely helpful if uh, your city was under siege or naval blockade. And he also used his talents to get rich. He predicted that there was going to be an incredible olive harvest. So before the harvest came, he hired all the olive presses, you know, the stuff that you use to make the olive oil. He hired all the presses in town. And then when the harvest came and it was just as awesome as he predicted, he then rented out the presses to the highest bidder. He made a killing. And my personal favorite bit of sort of practical genius of Thales is how he managed to calculate the height of the pyramids in Egypt. Now, before I tell you how he did it, just take a moment to think about how you would go about this task, measuring the height of the pyramid, you know, using you know, just a measuring tape or a ruler, or in his case, probably just string. What Thales did is he waited for the right time of day when the sun was exactly in the right position for his own shadow to be the same length as his body. And then he just measured the pyramid's shadow against the ground. I love this so much. It's a simple solution to a complex problem. It's the best kind of genius. But I still haven't mentioned what Thales is best known for in the field of philosophy, or rather his position in that story. Today, we mainly know Thales because of his answer to that question, the one we're exploring in this episode, about our origins. To him, the founding principle, the constitutive element, the original substance of the world was water. So imagine that, looking around this mysterious world and seeing all this stuff, you know, made of flesh and bone, of wood, of stone and clay, and saying that behind it all lies none other than water. Why would he have thought this? I guess partly tradition. In Greek mythology, 
water plays a very important role. In Hesiod, you know, chaos comes before anything else, but order was brought out of chaos in the ocean. And in that Greek mythology, the personification of the sea, the elemental god that embodies the sea, his name is Okeanos, which is the word that gives us ocean. Okeanos encircles the whole world and separates it from the underworld, from Hades. So Okeanos is almost like a, a boundary between our world and other dimensions. And it actually makes sense that this would be the case, right? That the Greeks would have the sea fulfilling such a big role in their mythology. Greece itself is an archipelago. In Greek colonies like Miletus, they were settled by seafaring people, by people who got in boats and traveled. Miletus specifically, though, because it was in Asia Minor, it was very close to Phoenician cities. You've heard of the Phoenicians, that great naval civilization. So to them and to the Milesians, the sea is where all the travel takes place. It's where all the trade happens. So it makes it even more reasonable that Thales would view the sea as a source of life. And then maybe, as we're told, some analogies would spring to his mind. You know, Turkey is one of the areas in the world with the highest level of seismic activity. It's a very earthquake-prone place. No doubt Thales will have been through a few quakes in his life. So imagine this. Maybe he's in the middle of a pretty scary earthquake and he's being thrown this way and that. And he's thinking, you know, this is exactly like being on a boat when the sea is a bit wavy and you're being jostled here and there and you have to hold on to something stable because you're unable to find firm footing. This feels just like that. I mean, after all, didn't Hesiod himself refer to Poseidon, the god of the seas, as, quote, the earth holder who shakes the earth? And maybe this is a eureka moment for Thales. The Roman philosopher Seneca says that Thales thought, quote, that the world is held up by water and rides like a ship. And when it is said to quake, it is actually rocking because of the water's movement. According to Thales, the world was like a wooden disc, a frisbee-shaped log just floating on the water. So the world's foundation is literally water. Just like a house's foundation is what holds it up, water holds the earth up. Now today, we know this is bullshit. We know that there isn't water underneath the continents. But if you look at it one way, you could say that his idea predated the theory of continental drift by 2,000 years. And if you substitute water for lava, the world kind of is floating, isn't it? But to Thales, water isn't just the foundation of the world in terms of being underneath it, of holding it up. It's also the founding principle, that original element, that arche. Why? Well, I guess if you're looking for a single unitary building block of existence, you're looking for the one, at some point you're just going to have to find a way to explain how from this one thing you get so many other different things. You get flowers, you get socks, you get burglars, you get laptops, you get wheelchairs, you get dogs. So whatever the basic element is, it has to have the ability to transform. And maybe Thales, who saw water as the bedrock of the world, would have noticed that water can change form. You know, it goes from liquid to vapor to solid when it freezes. So water has some kind of transformative power, just like an original element, an arche, would. 
So Thales is thinking water, it holds up the world, and moisture. Moisture brings life, you know, animals drink, they need moisture, plants, they need moisture, blood is moist, semen is moist. He must be seeing the pattern here, that water, that moisture is essential to life. So maybe that's how we get this strange theory that water is everything, that everything rests on water, that everything relies on water, that everything comes from water. Water is the origin of everything. Now, Thales is also known for another couple of obscure utterances that are quite interesting. I'll just go into them briefly. The first is the idea that magnets have souls. And by the way, isn't it just a little crazy to think that all those centuries ago, the Greeks already knew what magnets were? Now, it's not entirely clear what he meant with magnets have souls, but there is a certain trend in ancient Greek thought to equate life, and therefore souls, I guess, with motion. Even the word for a soul's highest expression, emotion, comes from the word motion, almost as if life and movement were one and the same. So because magnets could move each other, they must have had some kind of vital force, a soul, within them. And his second obscure utterance, which is related, is everything is full of gods. Now what does Thales mean here? Does he mean some kind of animism, you know, like the spirit of the tree or the spirit of the river, something like that? Or is he using gods as a metaphor for something else? And if so, what is it a metaphor for? Are we talking about souls, like in the magnets? Is everything full of souls? Or is he talking about the building blocks of creation? Is he talking about the arche? Is he saying that everything contains the gods of water? There's elements in Thales that make him seem almost like a panpsychist. I'm projecting modern philosophical notions onto him now, but panpsychism is the idea that everything in the universe, starting with the basic constituents of matter like atoms and electrons and other particles, they all possess some form of consciousness, just like Thales's magnets. Everything is full of gods. Okay. We've got a bit of an understanding of what Thales was all about, but hold on a minute. Water, eclipses, magnets. Is this philosophy? It's a difficult question to answer because what we mean by philosophy has evolved so much over the course of the centuries that the kind of questions Thales was asking and the way he was answering those questions is profoundly different from what a philosopher does today. In as far as the questions and answers are concerned, it's kind of more similar to what a physicist does today. But of course, Thales is working without the scientific method, empirical observation, inductive reasoning, experimentation. That's what we call science. If he's not doing these things, we can't really consider him a scientist. But we're talking about a time before the distinction in disciplines, before the specialization and the branching out of the various forms of knowledge. At this point, maybe there is no name for it. It's a bit philosophy, it's a bit theology, it's a bit science. But whatever it is, he's the first to be doing it in this form. He's the first to be looking out at the world, asking questions and finding answers using reason. The next in line in this succession of Milesian philosophers trying to figure out the origin of the universe is Anaximander. But I don't want to talk about him just yet, because 
In my view, he's the most interesting of the three, and he takes this line of inquiry off into a new and rather abstract dimension, so I'd rather leave him till last so I can expand and explore him in a bit more detail. So instead, now I'm going to skip Anaximander and tell you about his pupil, Anaximenes. Anaximenes is also interesting because he's a step forward from Thales. He takes what Thales is doing and moves it further along the line of scientific inquiry. So Thales, of course, had kicked off this whole line of rational inquiry into the world, kickstarting both philosophy and science in the process. But if you think about it, his theories on water don't really hold water. Now, don't look at it from our own perspective, thousands of years after Thales. We know how the world works, or at least we have the broad strokes of it. We definitely know that the earth isn't just a log of wood floating on water. For us, it's easy to see what's wrong with Thales' ideas. But if we sort of get into character, we put ourselves in the mindset of Thales' contemporaries, we might think of some objections they might have had to what he was saying. And one obvious objection to Thales is one that was raised by Aristotle, among others, and it's what's underneath the water. If you're saying that there's an element that is foundational, it also has to be a foundation to itself. It needs to be able to sustain itself. And that would require it to have some kind of boundless or infinite quality about it. And water doesn't quite seem to fit the bill. I mean, Aristotle just points out, well, if water is underneath the earth, what's underneath the water? What does the water rest on? Water isn't solving the problem of foundations, it's adding a new problem, namely, what does the water rest on? Anaximenes has a solution to this problem. To Anaximenes, the arche, the founding principle, the stuff everything is made of, is air. Now, if we just look at the problem in terms of the physical structure of the world, to Anaximenes, the Earth is a disk, just like Thales said. So, just like Thales, he's literally a flat earther. Except to Anaximenes, this flat Earth frisbee doesn't rest on water, but it rests on air. Kind of like the lid of a pot when you're boiling pasta and the steam pushes the pot upwards and, and you get these moments of equilibrium where the lid is hovering, held up by the steam and Anaximene says that that's how the earth works. And the reason this works better than water is because look at air. It's boundless, it's invisible, it's weightless. It would feel to an ancient as infinite, kind of like how empty space feels to us. Unlike water, air wouldn't need anything else to rest on. The foundation is the foundation because it can sustain itself. Just look at the difference here between all this reasoning by people like Anaximander and Aristotle later, all this justifying your theories, providing rational explanations, and how different it is to the Earth is held up by a giant called Atlas who carries it all on his shoulders. I mean, why would that possibly be the case? Why would you possibly believe that except for the fact that some king or some village elder said so? This is so different. It's riveting the need that these guys had to explain their ideas, to justify them, to, to defend them against rational probing. 
Anyway, so this guy Anaximenes, he's pointing at boiling water, at steam, at how the air pushes things up and saying that's the answer, not some crazy mythological nonsense that nobody can justify, but that, that's your answer right there. You can see it. You can question how it works and you can come up with an explanation. But what really makes Anaximenes a step forward from Thales is that he's less interested in the what. What are the building blocks of creation? What is the arche, whether that be water or air or some other element? And is more interested in the how. How does this arche give rise to all the many things we see around us? How does this element result in the other elements? How does the one give rise to the many? And to explain this, he talks about processes of condensation and rarefaction. And he proposes an experiment. So you can see from this that there's an approach that to us feels almost scientific. Processes, experiment, observation. And this is the experiment. He says, try blowing through pursed lips and you'll realize that the air coming through your mouth is cold. But try blowing through an open mouth and you'll realize that the air is hot. So there seems to be some kind of link between density and temperature. But it's not limited to temperature because think about what that implies. What is the hottest thing in the world that you can think of? Fire. And what's the coldest thing you can think of? Ice. Fire and ice. All arrived at through temperature which is linked to density. And these two things, they're not just a matter of different temperatures, hot and cold. Fire and ice are different elements. They're different kinds of matter. They're different textures and consistencies. So if there's a link between density and temperature, which is what we saw with that experiment of blowing through our pursed lips and open mouth, then could there also be a link between the process of condensation and its opposite, rarefaction, and the transformation of the elements into other elements. And Anaximenes says, of course there is. So you start with one element, air, which Anaximenes thought was the founding element, and if you condense it, it becomes water, it becomes liquid. Today, we even call the little droplets of dew that we find on plants in the morning condensation. And if you take water, if you take liquid, and you condense it further, well, what does water become when it becomes more dense? ice, solid. And that, to the Greeks, is the element of earth. Just a little bit of explanation here. When we're talking earth in the ancient sense, we're not talking about soil and stone and the ground. We mean earth as in solid, as opposed to the liquidity of water, to the gaseousness of air, and to, well, the fireishness of fire. And by the way, how do you get fire? Fire is rarefied air. It's air which is even less dense than air is. Just like when you rarefy the air through blowing through your open mouth, which means that the air molecules, the way we'd look at it, are less compressed, less compact, and it becomes warmer. Rarefied air becomes fire. So you can see why this is a leap forward from Thales. He too is talking about the basic matter of the universe, but he's also talking about processes. He's talking about the mechanics of how the universe comes into being and manifests itself to us the way we experience it with all the diversity and all the different kinds of elements and textures and consistencies that we see around us. 
Another final interesting thing that I find in Anaximenes is the spiritual aspect, or at least what today we might see as a spiritual aspect in his philosophy. So to him, air isn't just the element air, there's something divine and spiritual about it. To him, air is like a god. He calls it pneuma, life breath. Just like breathing is the difference between something being alive and dead, the whole world, according to Anaximenes, has this pervasive, dynamic, invisible, divine breath, pneuma, that makes it alive. It's kind of like the universe having a soul. And that soul being air, being pneuma, one could argue that Anaximenes might have seen us as all connected to the cosmos somehow, our individual breath being a microcosm of this larger cosmic breath. Similarly to how in the Hindu tradition there's a connection between the individual soul, Atman, and the universal divine soul, Brahman. They are all connected because they are the same thing, a single universal spirit, in this case breath, pervading the whole universe and connecting it into one great everything. And thus, finally, we reach Anaximander, easily the most interesting philosopher you've never heard of, and the first one to take philosophy into the realm of the abstract, which is Definitely a quantum leap for the whole discipline, because the philosophers he's working around, his uh, immediate successors and also predecessors like Thales, well, they're something closer to what we'd consider scientists today. They're talking about what we'd consider to be elements and chemical processes. But Anaximander is taking philosophy into something that we recognize today as philosophy or at least metaphysics, the study into the nature of ultimate reality, of pure being. You'll see what I mean in a moment, but first let me just briefly introduce Anaximander with a few factoids about the guy. So he's a pupil of Thales, and just like his great teacher, he's a polymath and a proto-scientist. He too is credited with a number of inventions, like uh, the Greek version of the sundial, the gnomon. So that, of course, is the vertical rod or triangle which is raised from the ground and casts a shadow on a flat plane depending on the position of the sun in the sky. And from that shadow you can tell the time of day or of year, etc., etc. So that's something he introduced in the West. He also uh, was the first person, it said, to produce a map of the Earth earth and the sea and the inhabited world as it was known to them at the time. So in that sense you could see him as the first cartographer and in the tradition of his teacher Thales predicting an eclipse, Anaximander is said to have predicted an earthquake, famously saving Sparta by telling them to take cover and refuge before a particularly big one was to hit. And then there's a couple of scientific theories Anaximander is credited with that give us a glimpse into the modernity of this guy and his thought. Following on from Thales and the idea that everything comes from water, Anaximander guessed that animals and human beings too originally came from water. And we of course know this now to be true, you know, the first uh, creatures living on land came onto land from the sea. But he took it a step even further. So reflecting on the particularly long infancy of human beings and 
that period of time where humans are particularly vulnerable far longer than most animals. Anaximander hypothesized that we can't always have been exactly the way we are, or we just would have been killed in one of those long periods of vulnerability and we never would have made it this far. So Anaximander says we can't have begun our existence as human beings. We must have derived from some earlier form of being. Probably something more similar to fishes, creatures living in the water. Isn't it crazy how close this is to the theory of evolution? Isn't it insane how this man, just using his mind with no long tradition of scientific thought to draw inspiration from, could have come so close to unlocking one of the greatest scientific theories of all time? Another theory that points at his visionary genius is his idea about the shape of the world. So, of course, his predecessor Thales said that the world was a disk of wood floating on water like a log. And his successor, Anaximenes, said that it was a flat earth, a disk, also floating but on air. But Anaximander says that the world isn't floating or resting on anything at all. Instead, it's suspended at the exact center of the universe. The reason it's suspended and stays where it is, is because it's at equal distance from all the extremities of the universe. It's equidistant from everything else, so it's in perfect equilibrium. Now, I'm sure you can see the modernity of this idea, of this geometric conception of the universe, this concern for proportionality. It kind of predates Newton and his idea of uh, gravitational forces and the push and pull of different bodies on each other, keeping them in this state of fragile equilibrium. And doesn't it also imply a spherical conception? The only way you can have equidistance is if everything is spherical. But here he got it wrong, because to Anaximander, the world was like a drum, a cylinder, two flat surfaces, one on top and one on the bottom. We're living on the top one, and then there's people living at the bottom one. So compared to us, they're upside down. Presumably, he means the Australians. It's quite close to what we know to be the case, except he's got a drum instead of a sphere. But anyway, that gives you an idea of Anaximander the scientist, Anaximander the thinker, who he was. But what's really interesting about him was the fact that he was the first Greek to put forth a genuinely metaphysical conception of the world, of transcendent reality. Just like Thales and just like Anaximenes, Anaximander is fascinated with the problem of the arche the origins and the main guiding supreme principle of reality. In fact, we're told he was the first one to introduce the term arche. What element does Anaximander see as being the building block of the world? None. To Anaximander, our arche is not an element. He's looking at the world and he's seeing it in terms of opposites. The succession of day and night, of winter and spring, hot versus cold, dry versus wet, light and dark, etc. If the world is made up of these opposites, how could one single element explain all of them? If you were taking water as the principle, how do you explain dryness? If any element were primal, were the basis for everything else, fire or water or whatever, that element would dominate over its opposite, so it would then conquer everything else. All the other elements would cease to exist. So the primal substance can't be a single element. 
It has to be something that can embrace all the opposites, something neutral, something where all the other elements come from. He's talking about a deeper, more ultimate level of reality. And so he introduces the notion of an original principle or substance that has no qualities, no form, no extension, no boundaries. He calls it the boundless, Apeiron. Now, Apeiron has been described as something that is infinite, unlimited, eternal, indefinite, that is ageless. Again, kind of like Carl Sagan's Cosmic Soup or Hesiod's original Chaos from which all else sprung. And to Anaximander, this Apeiron is eternally in motion. And from that motion, everything else spins off in pairs of opposites. Hot and cold, dry and wet, fire and ice, light and darkness. And all these opposites, they come into being for a while, they clash, and then they return to this Apeiron to be destroyed and born again. And in this eternal cycle of creation and destruction, he says that the worlds, worlds plural by the way, because to Anaximander, our world is just one of infinite worlds, all the worlds are born and die and are born again. There's this fragment written by Anaximander, and it's actually the earliest philosophical fragment we have. It says, quote, Into that from which things take their rise, they pass away once more, as is ordained. For they pay penance to each other for each other's injustice in accordance with the ordering of time. This idea of injustice, in Greek, adike, we can interpret it as transgressions on each other. So you take one opposite, heat, cold, light, dark, it begins to encroach onto the territory of the other. It starts to take more than its fair share. And then what happens is there's a pushback from the other opposite, the seasons marching into one another, or the wave retreating before it crashes onto the shore. And it's this eternal cycle until each of these pairs of opposite return, like ash to ash and dust to dust. Do you see how different this is between, hey, everything comes from water, or, you know, condensation and rarefaction, and this, this idea of an eternal cycle of birth and destruction that sounds kind of like samsara, you know, the cycle of karma. It's all just so much grander than anything that's come before because it's attempting a description of the absolute, of ultimate metaphysical reality. It's beyond anything we've seen before. The philosopher Martin Heidegger, he talked about this fragment at uh, the beginning of his famous book on being and time. And uh, he's talking about the Apeiron as the introduction of the concept of being into philosophy. Before Anaximander and around Anaximander, you have people talking about what is there, the multitude of actual things in the world, explaining them in terms of water, air, physical processes, etc., but Anaximander is talking about what existence, capital E, existence, actually is. And this being, this Apeiron, is the abstraction of all form. You can't even imagine it. You can't even visualize it. It's got no qualities, no way of being described. It's indefinite. Both specifically nothing, but also everything at the same time. Aristotle describes it as an idea where the arche isn't one thing, like air, water, etc., but is in between things, in between water and air, in between air and fire, in between states. And this in-betweenness of it, this weird unity of everything and nothing, it's 
a world where things exist in potential but without actually existing in any particular specific way. And I find this mind-blowing because today you look at this description of the world and you'd say, well, this looks a little like quantum uncertainty. How modern Anaximander is. And his idea of the world is a conception that is purely intellectual. There's no empirical observation, no way you can look out of your window and see something that gives you the idea of everything and nothing at the same time, or infinity, or absence of qualities and form. He's thinking in a way that is purely abstract, and that's why he seems just more, quote, philosophical than any of the other Milesians. And another reason I'm always so excited to think about Anaximander and talk about Anaximander is that as someone who, you know, went through a whole stoner phase and fascination with Eastern philosophies, I'm drawn to any conception of the world where ultimate being is a single one, you know, capital O, one. And I'm fascinated by how this theme of oneness keeps coming up time and time again in all these different cultures, almost as if this idea of the world were responding to a deep need common to all humanity to conceive the world as one thing that is interconnected. Here with Anaximander, you have this manifest reality that is made up of multitudes of opposites, all coming from the same one source, the Apeiron. And you get something very similar in certain Hindu traditions, where there is one universal reality, which is both the source of being and being itself. Some call it Brahman. And in Brahman, all is one. And then there's a separation, a rupture. And the physical world, the world of duality, of opposites, is cut off from this spiritual world of unity by the veil of illusion, maya. And of course there's debate as to whether we're actually cut off from uh, this ultimate reality or we're just cut off from realizing that we're still a part of the ultimate reality. But whichever it is, the point is that we're talking about a conception of the world where there's a differentiation between what is true, what is real, which is oneness, and what is false, or what is just a product, which is duality, which is opposites, physicality. And even in Judeo-Christianity, you can read between the lines and find elements of this conception of the world there as well. In, in Genesis, in the Bible, you're looking at an initial state of oneness, unity with the ultimate spiritual reality, which is God, and metaphorically that's presented as the Garden of Eden, you know, where humanity resides united with God in a state of bliss and deathlessness. And then came the separation, the sundering from this unity. We get kicked out from the Garden of Eden. And why? Because we ate from the tree that gives knowledge of good and evil. Good and evil, opposites, duality. Before, there was no good or evil. There was just oneness. There was God. There was the Garden of Eden. But after we gain knowledge of good and evil, of opposites, of duality, there's that sundering, the physical world of opposites, of good and evil, of pain in labor and childbirth. Right, so maybe I'm reading a bit too much into it, but it's a theme that keeps popping up in our intellectual tradition. And Anaximander is the first time we see it stated so explicitly in our philosophical tradition. Pre-Socratic philosophers are fascinating and important because they are such a remarkable anticipation of things to come. 
We know what was before them, and we know what's coming next. So we can really sense the courage, the boldness, the innovation in the ideas that they brought forward. Thales is a massive leap forward from previous accounts of the world because he sees nature as a complete system where the explanations for natural phenomena can be found within nature itself with no need to call on divine intervention and other explanations from outside nature. Anaximenes pushes forward this proto-scientific approach by showing how transformation between elements can be accounted for by means of observable scientific processes like condensation and rarefaction. And Anaximander shows us the potential of human reason by using his pure intellect to reach further into the abstract than anyone else before him ever had. Sure, these guys did seem to have some kind of religious conception of the world. I mean, Thales said that everything is full of gods and Anaximenes speaks of air as a god. But while they might be holding to some element of the traditional religion, they are looking for deeper principles that can explain everything, including the existence and origin of the gods. But perhaps their greatest legacy, and what we can really learn from these pre-Socratics, is their intellectual independence. In the succession from Thales to Anaximander to Anaximenes, we see students drawing on the ideas of their teachers and then disagreeing with them, and backing up their disagreement with reasoned arguments. So this is completely different from a religion or a cult where the leader's teachings and doctrine are dogma, and any departure from this orthodoxy is seen as a heresy and produces some kind of schism in the school and all the different viewpoints and versions are claiming supremacy because their version is what the great master actually meant all along. They're all harkening back to that initial authority of the great guy who founded the school or that method of inquiry. But no, with these guys, with the pre-Socratics, the great master, no disrespect, he can just be wrong. And here's why. And this is revolutionary because it hands us a tradition of questioning, of criticizing, and argumentation being not just tolerated, but encouraged. As Karl Popper put it, it leads to the realization that our attempts to find the truth are not final, but open to improvement. That our knowledge, our doctrine is conjectural, that it consists of guesses, of hypotheses, rather than of final and certain truths. And that criticism and critical discussion are our only means of getting nearer to the truth. The pre-Socratics are the first crucial step on the path that will eventually lead us to science as we know it today. Yeah, Mr. White. Yes, science. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Great Everything. And if you like the show, there's a few ways you can help out. You can leave a review on iTunes or anywhere else you listen to this podcast. Or you can share it, embed it, talk about it on your podcast or write a blog about it. You can call in using Anchor. Or you could just add me on the various Twitters and Instagrams out there. I hope I see you again here, there, or anywhere else, frankly. Until then, grazie e arrivederci. Well, arrivederci, Luigi.